Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Rebecca Robbins. Adam and I are coming to you from STAT's newsroom here in Boston, Massachusetts. Rebecca is recording from STAT's San Francisco outpost. It's Thursday, May 31st, and here's what's on the docket this week. A drug maker called Madrigal Pharmaceuticals just reported positive data for an experimental drug meant to reverse the fatty liver disease known as NASH. We'll talk about fatty livers and the drugs that may or may not treat them. Two of the biggest biopharma conferences of the year are about to kick off. We'll preview ASCO, where there will be tons of news, and Bio, where there will be no news. And finally, we'll bring you another lightning round, jam-packed with piping hot biotech takes on topics including a CRISPR clinical hold, ambient-induced racism, and, well, some peachy marketing. But first, a word from our sponsor. At Takeda, we work tirelessly every day to serve the needs of our patients. We aim to earn the trust of society and our customers through our integrity, fairness, honesty, and perseverance. We strive to be best in class and won't stop until we help create better health and a brighter future for people around the world. Learn more by visiting us at Takeda.com. As we speak, a company called Madrigal Pharmaceuticals is watching its stock price double. That's all thanks to something called Nash. Adam, what's NASH? NASH is short for non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. Um, what that basically means is it's a, it's a disease in which fat builds up in the liver over years, even decades, and leads to a dangerous uh, tissue scarring process called fibrosis. And that fibrosis can often lead to organ failure or even cancer. As it stands right now, NASH affects between 15 and 30 million Americans, depending on how you classify the disease. And the causes are, you know, as what you would expect from something called fatty liver disease, essentially, right? Poor diet, lack of exercise, and all of that is on the rise. And this doctors believe it may become the leading driver of liver transplants by the end of the decade. And importantly, there are no approved drugs for NASH, and so biotech sees it as a multi-billion dollar opportunity in the making. You know, analyst reports have pegged sort of the market for NASH drugs upwards of $20 billion by 2025. Now, analysts are always sort of overly optimistic, but it kind of gives you a sense of kind of the big commercial opportunity here. And there are something like 50 NASH drugs in clinical trials, according to BiomedTracker, which include agents from Gilead Sciences, Allergan, Intercept Pharma, a French company called GenFit, um, all of whom are in phase three with potential treatments for this disease. And that brings us back to Madrigal Pharma. On Thursday, uh, the company said it was moving into phase three with its NASH drug, uh, which was based on positive results from a phase two study. Uh, so after nine months of treatment, uh, Madrigal's pill showed significant reductions in liver fat and NASH resolution compared to a placebo. There is a caveat, though, and that's that the effect of the drug on liver fibrosis uh, was much more modest. Yeah, so obviously the market uh, investors are are very pleased with these results. I mean, it's it's a you know again a biotech stock doubling in price after a mid-stage clinical trial today. It's quite uh, that's quite an event. Um, but I think you know overall Nash fatty liver disease. I mean, there are a lot of questions um, kind of with this market and and sort of what will happen in the future. Well, one of those questions is a really basic existential one, and it's one that I've heard echoed by physicians, which is, 
Is NASH even a real disease? It is a good question. From the dawn of time, pharmaceutical companies have tried to figure out a way to develop medicines basically around obesity. Uh, and you know, we've had things like obesity, metabolic syndrome, now we have NASH. And whether or not, instead of diet and exercise, which we know obviously are effective, but most people don't want to take the time and effort to do that, is there a pill that you can pop where you can lose weight or remove fat from your liver? And, and so in some respects, fatty liver and NASH are sort of a kind of, I don't want to say made up disease, but sort of repackaged obesity. But at the same time, if you let that progress over years and your liver becomes all scarred and fibrotic and, you, and your liver fails or you get cancer, you know, that's, that's obviously a real uh, outcome that doctors need to treat. Regardless of whether NASH is a real disease, there's a question about how you actually measure clinical benefit in a disease like this. You know, it can take decades for fatty liver to progress to NASH, to progress to liver failure. And that seems to pose a challenge for biopharma and the FDA, right? You know, how do you measure uh, clinical benefit or lack of benefit when the disease advances so slowly? Yeah, it's a big issue. The fact is the FDA has kind of set a pretty low regulatory bar right now on what needs to happen in order to get a NASH drug approved. Essentially, you have to sort of show you can have NASH resolution, you can resolve NASH over a certain period of time, but you don't necessarily have to show that you can resolve or cure the liver fibrosis. I mean, you, you, you can't make liver fibrosis worse, but you don't necessarily have to make it any better in order to get a drug approved. So the bar for getting one of these drugs approved is low, but I think that that's going to cause a problem on the commercial end because you're going to see insurance companies sort of trying to make put restrictions on patient access because of the market here. And, you know, we're talking about 15 to 30 million people who might potentially be targets or, you know, customers for these drugs. Well, and there's precedent for that, right? Like, so the uh, very costly anti-cholesterol medicines that debuted over the past few years have been commercial failures, at least thus far, for exactly that purpose. It was unclear to the payers whether they had long-term benefits for the large patient populations that they would conceivably treat. So I guess my curiosity is, is NASH going to be the next you know, cholesterol-lowering generation of medicines, or will it be like the hepatitis C cures that came out the past few years that made billions of dollars? Yeah, I mean, I think those are all really good questions that, you know, you can't really answer right now. But, you know, uh, Ethan Weiss, who's a cardiologist, friend of STAD, he lives out in San Francisco. He's actually been on Twitter this morning talking about these questions and, and is sort of conflicted. And he sees some benefit from these NASH drugs, like the magical drug data came out today. But he's also wondering, what is the ultimate outcome for patients? Are you going to treat their NASH, but what about the diabetes that these patients have? What about the cardiovascular disease that these patients have? And I think these are all sort of questions that the insurance companies are going to take a look at, along with what ultimately what will be the price of these drugs, to try to come up with a way to sort of manage patient access. And so I think exactly what you said, Damien, is that this is like another PCSK9 situation, which, you know, again, maybe a couple of years out because we're still, we don't have these drugs approved yet, but it's coming. There's also the question of whether a drug is a cure or not. Of course, you know, when hep C drugs went through these battles with insurers, they could legitimately argue that their new treatments were indeed cures. These NASH drugs that are in development, they are not cures. That's a really good point, and that makes it, again, more difficult to justify or to argue clinical outcome and clinical benefit uh, versus, you know, putting every one of these patients on the drug right now. I think what you'll probably end up seeing, like with the PCSK9s, is you'll see rationing. You'll see a triaging effect where the patients you have 
sort of end stage NASH. These are the patients that have the most fibrosis in their liver, the ones that are most at risk to cancer or to liver failure. They're the patients that are gonna get treated. Now, there are probably a lot of those patients out there, but again, the earlier stage ones are gonna be patients who were sort of warehoused or sort of shunted to the side and said, you know, we're not gonna treat you right now. But as we can see from Madrigal's stock price, Wall Street is not gonna worry about any of those questions yet. It's that time of the year again. Graduations, barbecues, rising temperatures, and two of the biggest biopharma conferences of the year. By that we mean ASCO and Bio, both of which are kicking off in the next few days. Let's start by talking about ASCO. For the uninitiated, ASCO is the annual gathering of the American Society of Clinical Oncology. It happens in Chicago every year, and it's the biggest meeting of the year when it comes to cancer data. So Stats' Sharon Begley is going to be on the ground in Chicago, and Adam here will be reporting from here in Boston. So, Adam, what are you going to be watching for at ASCO? So Rebecca mentioned graduation, so I'd like to just say shout out to my son, who's graduating from high school this weekend, which is the reason why I won't be in Chicago. Yeah. But so anyway, congrats, son, from graduating from high school. But getting back to the topic at hand, there's no like real theme this year at ASCO. I think it's kind of a, more of a repeat of, of older themes. And one thing that I, I think bears watching is kind of this emergence of highly effective drugs that target very specific, often rare genetic weaknesses found in cancer cells. An example this year uh, is Loxo Oncology, it's a small biotech company. They're gonna be presenting early data on a drug that targets a genetic mutation called RET that's found across multiple different kinds of solid tumors. Um, you know, it's, what's interesting here is that we're moving to this point where cancer is being characterized by its genetic mutation uh, that, you know, that causes the cancer, but not the body part or the organ where it's found. Yeah, that's been an interesting development. I mean, there's a, speaking of Loxo, their more advanced drug is seeking FDA approval for basically a basket of tumor types that share that genetic signature. And it's, I mean, precision medicine has sort of been beaten to death as a concept and you kind of roll your eyes when you hear it now. But um, the FDA approved a tissue agnostic cancer drug last year and then Loxo pushing forward and others, uh, Ignita, which was acquired by Roche. As much as it pains me to like co-opt the jargon of um, pharma press releases, like an era of precision medicine and, and basically body part agnostic cancer treatment does seem to be on the rise. Now let's talk about the other set of anticipated headlines from ASCO, and that's combination cancer immunotherapies. Adam, what are you going to be watching for in that category? Yeah, Rebecca, I think, you know, this combination cancer immunotherapy idea is something that, you know, we've talked a lot about on the podcast. It's one of those things that's really exciting, but the data that we've seen so far has been sort of eh. Uh, you know, obviously we had the big blow up early this year with Insights drug when it was combined with a checkpoint inhibitor. So, you know, again, at ASCO this weekend and into next week, we're going to get a lot more data from some early and mid-stage studies looking at these combination immunotherapy approaches. Um, some of the data that we already saw a couple of weeks ago when the abstracts came out looked somewhat disappointing and muddled. You know, we, we've written about that. So again, it's just kind of this idea that, uh, you know, maybe this is taking a little bit longer to sort of flesh out as an idea, and uh, we'll just have to see what those data look like. One thing I'm curious about is how the vibe might have shifted at this ASCO versus ASCO's past. You mentioned there are all of these early stage studies, often without a control arm, combining a cancer drug we know works with one we don't know whether it works. 
And there always seemed to be enough data in those early stage studies for the people who stand to make money off of it to excuse taking it all the way to a large scale trial. And you mentioned the Merck and Insight thing from earlier this year. That's exactly what happened there. There was promising early data that went to a large scale trial that failed. And so I wonder if that might inject some humility, this ASCO. I'm probably very foolish to suggest Humility. That. <laughs> wow, that's not a word you hear very often when it uh, comes to biotech companies. But it is a good point. And you would think that the lesson here would be maybe we should be running more randomized controlled studies early on in the process so that we can sort of figure out what works and what doesn't. That hasn't happened yet. We have a lot of these sort of single arm studies that give you these results where, you know, basically you can interpret them any way you want. And for a lot of small biotech companies, that interpretation means let's rush ahead to a phase three study. And then ultimately a lot of those studies fail. So it would be nice if we saw more randomized control studies where you'd get more definitive data early on, but that's just not the way that the industry works right now. So now let's talk about bio. So BIO is put on by the industry trade group known as the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. This is basically a networking conference. It's the conference where nothing newsworthy happens, but for some reason, everyone in the industry goes anyway. It rotates locations every year, and this year it's in Boston, Stat's backyard. So Rebecca, what are you going to be watching for at BIO, if anything? So one of the themes I'm going to be tracking is the rise of Chinese biopharma and the rise of Chinese money as well in the industry. Probably the event I'm most interested in going to is a roadshow that's being put on by the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. The idea is that they are basically going to be wooing US biopharma companies to go public on their exchange. And we've talked on this podcast before uh, about the uh, risks that that can create for the market. And so thinking back to January at the JP Morgan conference, which is sort of the newsier cousin to bio, uh, Rebecca, you and our colleague Megan Akeshavan wrote a story that revealed that there were more men named Michael on the program list of speakers at that conference than there were women whatsoever. Um, so I think we will all be on the lookout for similar trends at this conference. And then, of course, you know, you wouldn't have a sort of a hypey biotech conference without some frivolous panels. and. There's one on the schedule that basically compares running an NFL franchise to running a biotech company. The panel features Jonathan Kraft, who owns the New England Patriots with his father, Robert Kraft, and he's speaking with an executive from Sanofi Genzyme. I was thinking about going to that because I have no idea how running an NFL team is like running a biotech company, but maybe I'll learn something. You are absolutely going to learn. And I think, you know, those, <laughs> I guess frivolous is a fair term, um, panels that sometimes dot bio, it brings to mind, like, why are we all here? Why are we doing this? But then I often remind myself that if bio didn't exist, someone would just have to create it because there's a vacuum. JP Morgan is in January, so it sort of sets the outlook for the year. And then around the middle of the year, everybody kind of wants to congregate and check in with one another throughout the industry. And thus bio rose to accommodate that, even if it's newsless or whatever. What I'm looking forward to more so is that people I don't normally get to interact with because they're in California or Europe or whatever will be in Boston and I can get a coffee and et cetera. And if it means sitting through how the NFL is like running a biotech company, then so be it. And then of course, it wouldn't be a bio conference without the nightlife. Probably the best party of the week is called PABNAB. It's an acronym short for Party at Bio Not Associated with Bio. This party has a slightly checkered history. A couple of years back, they brought an actual live camel to their party in San Francisco. Do we know what this year's theme is? So this year, the theme is Dia de los Muertos, which is actually on November 1st, <laughs> not in June. 
And it seems like it has some potential to be a little culturally appropriative. But if problematically painting a skull onto your face isn't quite your speed, maybe you could go for some Diana Ross. And if so, you're in luck because Bio has hired her to perform at the conference this year. It's time for another lightning round. Oh goody, I love the lightning round. So we got some complaints about the sound effects that we've been using for these, and ever responsive to the whims of our readers, we have changed them, and your new lightning round sound effect is... Ding, ding. I'm sure someone will be complaining about this one too, so we'll just change it again next week. Ding, ding. All right, let's get started. Uh, we've had a clinical hold on a CRISPR drug this week. Damien, what happened? So CRISPR Therapeutics and its friends at Vertex Pharmaceuticals have a CRISPR-based treatment for sickle cell disease that they were hoping to get into a human clinical trial in the United States this year. What they told us this week is that the FDA said not so fast, essentially. And as part of its review of the filing, they want more information. That seems like a very deep question. You know, can you actually put a clinical hold on something that's not in the clinic yet? Yeah, I think that was kind of the funny thing here was that this is a hold before it's even actually gotten into humans. The other thing that's funny about the story is that, you know, this CRISPR therapeutics, the stock price has soared this year, and we've all kind of wondered why. And I think the, the thing that we kind of all figured out, or maybe the only logical explanation is that people who know nothing about CRISPR but want to own a CRISPR stock saw CRISPR therapeutics and said, that's the one I'm going to buy. Ding, ding. Okay, now let's talk about Donald Trump. While he was signing that right to try bill that we've talked about so much, he made this weird and vague promise that in two weeks, which is his favorite period of time, drug companies will be announcing, quote, voluntary massive drops in prices. So to be clear, there is no actual evidence or precedent that this is going to happen. Unclear at all where Trump came up with this fact. Yeah, this seems like another sort of off script moment uh, during a, you know, Trump signing ceremony where he just make something up. But, you know, I'm sure that in a couple of weeks we'll find some drug that goes off patent and then the generic came out and the price is really cheap and so they can point to something that says, hey, look, prices have dropped. Ding, ding. Next up, Ambien, trending. Roseanne Barr, what is going on here, Damien? I actually sort of tried to spare myself from learning about this, but what I gleaned despite my best efforts to stay in the dark is that television Star Roseanne Barr tweeted something racist and then when asked about it said I was on Ambien and as many people know one of the potential side effects of Ambien is behaviors including sleepwalking and etc that one might normally do and thus Ambien is trending. So we can add we can add sleep tweeting to the list of side effects or sleep racist tweeting to this list to the list of side effects of Ambien. Well, in fact, Sanofi, the maker of Ambien, uh, put out a pretty remarkable tweet uh, in response to this whole hubbub, uh, saying that racism is not a known side effect of any Sanofi medication. <laughs> I have to say that I, I don't give praise to PR people very often, but bravo, Sanofi PR person, whoever you are who came up with this tweet. I, I mean, yeah, racism is not a known side effect of any medication that I'm aware of. I think, I mean, like, 
the reaction that happened on Twitter, and again, I should better insulate myself from these things, was essentially like, welcome to the resistance, large multinational drug company, which, ah, whatever. And then furthermore, the tweet begins with, people of all races, religions, and nationalities work at Sanofi. Now, I don't know if Sanofi employs someone from every single nation on the earth. Kudos to them if they do, but that kind of struck me as, uh, I don't know. I think you're thinking too deeply about this, Damien. Yeah. <laughs> ding, ding. Okay, now let's talk about Craig Venter, the famed genomics pioneer who raced with the government to decode the human genome. What is going on with him? That's a good question. So he spent the past few years leading Human Longevity, San Diego startup focused on mining genetic data and selling pricey and questionably necessary concierge medical workups. So out of the blue, he announced on Twitter he was retiring and going back to his institute. But this is very unusual because there was radio silence from the company. No press release, no explanation, no nothing. The company's website still lists Craig as CEO. And that's pretty uncommon. So I think all of us have kind of been asking around and have heard whispers and like unconfirmed rumors about the status of the company or any kind of like falling outs that may take place. But so far, at least no one that I've talked to seems to have any concrete idea of what is happening. And if you do have a concrete idea, email us. Ding. Okay, last thing. So a drug was approved this week. The drug is called Imvexi, and it is indicated to treat postmenopausal women who experience painful intercourse. This has all been very uncomfortable. Like, are we going to talk about this on the lightning round? And I wanted to say the only notable thing here that I want to point out is that the maker of this drug, Therapeutics MD, has chosen a ripe, juicy peach as sort of their marketing image for Imvexi. I don't know if we need to say anything more about that, but there it is. So not only is it a ripe, juicy peach, but it also has a starburst right at the center of the image. I wish you could all see Damien right now. He's blushing. And that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Before we go, a quick note. In July, Stat Plus will be launching an advice column called Lessons Learned. We're looking for scientists who've made the jump from academia to industry and hoping they'll offer tips to younger researchers contemplating the same moves. If that sounds like you or you know someone who's recently made a transition like that, send a note to Mega, our engagement editor, at megahas at statnews.com. And we want to thank Jeff Delvisio, Matthew Orr, and Hyacinth Ebonado, who produced this week's episode. Jeff Delvisio is also our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, where are you listening from, ask us questions or send suggestions that would make Damien blush. Uh, you can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. See you next week. <laughs>